Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce Sally McKenzie. Uh, she received her bachelor's in, in plant biology from UC Davis and a master's and PhD in plant genetics from the University of Florida. Uh, she was at Purdue until joining UNL where she was the former director for the Center of Plant Science Innovation. Uh, she holds the Ralph and Alex Rakes chair, is co-founder of EpiCrop Technologies, and is the 2016 to 2017 president of ASPB. Uh, her research, originally stemming from the study of mitochondrial recombination in plants, has now expanded into the interface between nuclear organelle interactions, environmental sensing, and the epigenome. So please join me in welcoming Sally McKenzie. Thank you. You're still here. I really appreciate that. It's been a long day and actually quite a fascinating day for me personally. It's wonderful uh, listening to Jesse's work, listening to Jim's work, um, gives me uh, renewed optimism that one can move their way around uh, with some dexterity, very, very large genomes. And I find that really very exciting. I mean, the idea that, you know, Jim presented data where you can basically be right on top of genes, that, that just transforms the way we think about crop, excuse me, crop genomes. But there are things that we can't know, genetically speaking. And so that's what I want to talk about today to sort of close out this symposium, is the fact that there's a lot we all realize is non-genetic. Uh, so many of you today have talked about heterosis. We all know in this room you don't know what you're talking about. We still don't know what we're talking about. How many people have talked about G by E today? You know, genotype by environment, what the heck are we talking about? And yet there are very real and phenomenal differences in how a genotype will behave in different environments. Um, so I want to tell you a little bit about what my lab is thinking about with regard to that type of non-genetic phenomena that we have seen, uh, you know, uh, in, in many of our materials, particularly with regard to crops, even though a lot of what we are studying right now starts in Arabidopsis, we've made great strides in moving well, what we're looking at uh, into uh, crops. So many of you already know that my lab several years ago cloned a gene that we designated MSH1 for mutas homolog1. And this gene we thought we were cloning because we were interested in those genes associated with DNA metabolism for organellar genomes. And this happens to be a nuclear encoded gene that sends its product both to the mitochondria and to the plastid. But here's what I didn't realize at the time. And that is that many of the nuclear genes that were involved in the endosymbiotic process, meaning that it used to be, let's say, a mitochondrial gene when it got into the nucleus, it found its way into two organelles instead of one, often undergo multifunctionalization with regard to protein. And MSH1 is no exception. And so this gene, yes, started out as a mitochondrial uh, protein that's involved in maintaining stability of the mitochondrial genome, which it does quite nicely. And so when we mutate it, we will see uh, very predictable and reproducible recombination activity in the mitochondrial genome of plants, but it also goes to the plastid. And when it goes to the plastid, what we see is something really quite wonderful and magical and unsurprising. And so the multifunctionalization, if you will, of this protein appears to have happened once it found its way into the plastid. And uh, so, so we know that it uh, localizes to the mitochondrial and plastid nucleoids. That's where DNA is maintained. But what's important to remember, and so what you're looking at in the upper left-hand corner, is how we know it's in the mitochondria. And so we, we basically use green fluorescent protein tagged onto our protein. It takes it right into the mitochondria, and you're seeing those inside a cell. But in the lower panel, what you're looking at is in a plastid, and you see those little punctate dots. And that's because the nucleoid is a subcompartment within the plastid. But here's the thing. Inside the plastid, if you perturb uh, MSH1, what you create is some sort of a signal in the cell. So yes, it's in the nucleoid, and yes, it's associated with DNA. But once you mess that up, plastid genomes are not the only thing encompassed within that nucleoid. Remember that that's where gene expression is happening. And remember, or I'll tell you if you didn't know already, gene expression is very intimately tied to redox sensing in the plastid. So when things mess up in terms of redox, gene expression responds right away in the plastid and tells the nucleus, hey, I'm in trouble. I believe that we're probably capturing a little of that uh, very intimate relationship with regard to MSH1. 
And so here I'm just showing you that DAPI staining for DNA co-aligns with GFP for MSH1. That just tells you that, yes, MSH1 is sitting inside those uh, nucleoids. And we've just kind of offset that a little bit so that you can see that they're both co-aligning quite nicely. So here's when things get interesting. So if we pull MSH1 out of the plastid, or let's just say we mutate it all together, what you'll start to see are changes in development that are not associated with organeller behavior, at least not to my knowledge, before we did this study. You'll see dwarfing associated with changes in gibberellic acid metabolism. You will see a delay in the transition from juvenile to mature, and there you're looking at the rounded leaves on the lower panel of MSH1 throughout development relative to the elongate ones that always happen when a plant is no longer juvenile. You see over in the left-hand panel in the lower corner that these plants, if they're grown at the right day length, will basically transition into a perennial-like growth habit. It becomes woody, and it'll grow for six months, seven months. It'll make aerial rosettes. This is not Columbia Zero, not the one I know, but we can transition this. That happens by the downregulation of SOC1, by the way. We know the pathways that are involved in a lot of what we're seeing. We see dramatic delays in flowering time. All of these things integrated into the MSH1 phenotype. What the heck? Well, here's the thing. Integrated is the key word because we know these pathways are integrated. So let me remind you of some of them. Clock genes are integrated into this process. Juberolic acid metabolism integrated to this process. Flowering through the FLC pathway integrated to this process. Response to cold, response to light and day length. All these things are integrated processes. That's number one. Second thing I want you to know is we already knew before we ever launched this study that all of those have mechanisms for epigenetic regulation done by work, beautiful work in Arabidopsis by several laboratories. Okay, so that's the first thing I want you to know. These were not organeller pathways. We don't even know these to be organeller controlled pathways, but suddenly they're all elicited simultaneously when we just pull out MSH1 from the plastid. Now, uh, let me just tell you that in terms of gene expression, when we pull out MSH1, we also see all kinds of things that are non-organeller. For the most part, you won't be able probably to read these, so let me just tell you some of these. So you'll get a range of phenotypes. When we first pull out MSH1, the first generation is really quite mild. Then you bring that mutant to the second generation, and now you see the full elaboration of the phenotype, the dwarfing, the delay in flowering, the changes in morph leaf morphology, et cetera. When that happens, you will also see dramatic changes in plant stress response. In other words, you see a global stress response in terms of gene expression. So what you're looking at here in the little blue line of this Venn diagram is generation one, very mild changes in gene expression. Down in the little red circle, you're basically seeing a, a mild phenotype of the MSH1 mutant. And that we call variegated, but it means it's mostly growing normally, and the phenotype is really quite mild. And there's some changes in gene expression there, largely, or some of them associated with photosynthesis, because we're also perturbing the plastid. And then the big gray one, where the vast majority of the gene expression changes happen, is when we take the most severe phenotype. It's dwarfed, it's delayed in flowering, it's variegated, et cetera. And what I want to point out to you is on the right-hand corner, the vast majority of there, we're just sort of looking at select uh, changes in gene expression, but mainly the ones that are most prominent, is the vast majority of them are associated with phytohormone response, circadian rhythm changes, as well as responses to abiotic stress and biotic stress. And in fact, these plants are remarkably hardy to abiotic, and, and I don't know so much about biotic stress, but certainly abiotic stress, cold, heat, uh, drought, high light, oxidative stress, it's wild. All these pathways are jointly elicited. And let me just uh, tell you that that global stress response that we see is also a set of pathways that we know to be integrated and then we know something about. I swiped this from uh, Ray Shao. This is a slide that he actually swiped from somebody else, so I don't know the source. But it's a very nice slide that integrates the pathways we already see responding. So look at the upper left-hand corner, and you've got heat, salinity, drought, cold, and all of that's running through ABA and jasminate, all of those pathways responding to MSH1. Likewise, you're seeing uh, changes associated with GA uh, interacting with ABA. Likewise, as I mentioned earlier, GA responses are also elicited here. And all of these are centrally integrated by salicylic acid pathways, 
also really key gene expression changes in our, in our line. So what I'm trying to tell you is, as multifaceted and pleiotropic as the phenotype seems that we're looking at in MSH1, it isn't at all. In fact, it's a well-integrated network that we didn't know about before, likely integrated through pathways like salicylic acid, probably the circadian rhythm pathway, and, and a couple of others, with some real key regulators, MAPK, et cetera, transcription factors, and uh, let's say signal transduction processes are also integrated here. So as much as it looks like a black box, in fact, it's not a black box at all. The literature very much says this is an integrated set of networks. But the interesting thing is that MSH1 triggers it all, okay, through the plastin. And in fact, we do know that to be able to see ROS and redox changes, we know those to happen as well. So what I want to point out here is that when you want to look at redox changes in the plastid, we're here looking at plastoquinone. Uh, we're looking at a cyclized form of plastoquinone, uh, plastoquinol 8 in the middle, and then alpha-tocopherol. All of these are important to maintaining redox status in the plastid. And what I want to point out to you, particularly in the lower uh, panel, lower left-hand panel, is that in Columbia Zero, we will see um, uh, what you're looking at in the, in the blue is the reduced versus the oxidized state of plastoquinone. And what I want to point out to you is in the MSH1 mutant, you see a dramatic different change in levels of plastoquinone as well as the redox status of it, likewise for tocopherol. And so uh, all of these phenomena suggest that, in fact, redox status is thrown off in these plastids, and that might give us some indication of the cue that initially starts the process going. That is the language plastids generally talk in, the language of ROS, the language of redox sensing. So that's, a, that's one hypothesis working model for the lab. Okay, so, so here's the thing that's interesting about this. There are things that I'm going to tell you about in a moment that are, were very surprising to us. But when you achieve this state that, that comes about, this highly pleiotropic effect that we create with, with MSH1 suppression, where we're changing stress responses and we're changing growth behavior, once we have triggered this, uh, let's say we would use an RNAi construct to downregulate MSH1. Once that happens, that process takes on a life of its own, meaning that if we reinstate MSH1 expression, that phenomena we've created will remain heritably. And I'll show you some evidence of that in a moment, but that got us to thinking a little bit about whether some parts of what we're looking at are non-genetic. To be able to trigger this wider range, and let me point out to you, the traits I'm talking about are all environmentally responsive. That's why that's what's triggered a lot of my questions for people who have talked today. Do you think this is genetic or non-genetic? Is because, in fact, we have a tendency to think everything is genetic. But, in fact, there's an awful lot of what we work with that isn't genetic at all. And those are the things that the environment really does impact. There are lots of processes, a lot of them triggered by phytohormone responses. A lot of things where a plant is interfacing with its environment, where there are non-genetic changes. And what I'm most interested in, and my lab is most interested in, is A, the heritability of those non-genetic effects, as well as whether we can underlie and learn to program some of those non-genetic effects to our advantage. So the first thing you need to know then is, okay, so if we trigger all of this change in MSH1, would there be a change in methyl uh, cytosine uh, methylation that might ac accompany it, and that's because epigenetic changes are generally not heritable unless they're accompanied by changes in cytosine methylation. That's really the heritable, as far as we know so far, the heritable component of non-genetic effects. So the first thing we did was to ask whether we saw methylome changes, changes in cytosine methylation patterns that would accompany the MSH1 suppression. And the way we do this is First of all, we, we know from the literature that methylation behavior is quite noisy, and that's because there's a dynamic process of methylation change that goes on all the time, a little bit like Brownian motion, if you will, to stabilize the chromosome. So as a consequence, you want to be able to look at the signal above and beyond background noise, if you will. And so to do that, one of the ways that we minimize generational noise for the methylome is that we start with what we call a naive genome. 
So that means we start with a tDNA insertion mutant of MSH1 that's never been homozygous for the mutation. So we start with it in the heterozygous condition or the hemizygous for the tDNA insertion. So it's never been MSH1 minus before. So the first generation, we are able to then, what you're seeing there, is segregation of that, of that uh, tDNA insertion gives us MSH1 minus, hemizygous, and MSH1 plus segregants. That MSH1 plus segregant, we can then use as our wild type control because it's in the same lineage and a full sieve of our mutant, okay? Minimizing generational noise. Then we can take the progeny from those mutants to the next generation. That will be second generation when we see the full elaboration of the phenotype. We can go a little bit further and continue this down to generation three and so on. And we have sequenced the methylome using genome-wide bisulfite sequencing to look at all of the methylation changes that happen. And the first things that we notice, these data are somewhat old at this point, but, it, but they're published. Um, the first thing that we notice, I'll just point out with the, the arrow. So what you're looking at in the upper right-hand corner, the very, very top is just basically the, out, the layout of the chromosome. So let me just remind you, maize aficionados, that for Arabidopsis, that the transposable elements tend to cluster up near the, uh, near the centromere. And so you're looking at a little, little arrow where the centromere is and then a whole bunch of you know, a, a black density where the, where the transposable elements are. And they're important because they are methylation magnets. And so what you're looking at on that first panel is a heat map. And we look at cytosine methylation in three different contexts for plants, CG, and then non-CG, which would be CHG or CHH, where the H is anything but a G. And so what, what we think about when we think about CHG or CHH, let's say non-CG context, generally refers to things that are going to hit repeats and transposable elements. Okay? And, and CG methylation is usually associated with gene body methylation. You find some in promoters, but mostly that's going to tell you about uh, what the, the gene space in the genome is doing. And what I want to point out to you is simply that what we can find uh, when we look at CG methylation is that uh, if you just look at our, at our mutant here, this is our dwarf mutant, is that we see changes in the, the brighter the red, the more change. We see changes all along the chromosome arm when we're looking at CG methylation, that's the gene space. But when we look down at these other two panels, you see it mostly around the paracentromeric space. The changes are basically associated with transposable elements. Okay, And that's not a surprise. But what it does indicate that I want to point out to you is that this configuration of changes in methylation is very much reminiscent of what one would expect to see if a plant was really under stress. Okay, so genomic stress would also do something like this. So I've been talking about stress in every context, abiotic stress genes all upregulated, the genome itself is behaving like there's a certain amount of stress. There's a theme here. Okay, what I also want to point out down here is that what we see is we see changes both in CG, here we've got them color-coded, both in CG and non-CG methylation context. We see a predominance toward hypermethylation for non-CG. But in general, we also see dramatic changes, which almost hints at the idea that there's almost a reprogramming of the methylome, that we're making a dramatic change in methylation behavior. Okay? And, and that's going to be important here to this story. And in fact, we refer to this as developmental reprogramming as a consequence of the fact that such dramatic and far-reaching changes are happening to these plants as a consequence of suppression of one single gene, MSH1, pulling it out of the plastic. Okay, so how does this all work? I mean, how do we suddenly get this total reprogramming of the methylome? How does the methylome know where to go? How did it even know to change? Well, it isn't as simple as all that. So actually, um, uh, two people in the room, Ray Shao, who introduced me, and Sunil, who organized this, this uh, symposium, uh, worked together on this project. So what they did was they asked, OK, so what is the relationship between methylome behavior in these plants relative to environment? Since we know that these plants are behaving like they're hyper-responsive to environment, and we've got these dramatic methylome changes. The way they did this was to grow their plants. Their, so they started with three different mutants. They started with Columbia Zero. They started with normal MSH1 mutants, those that look the least impacted in phenotype, and then those that are showing the full elaboration of the MSH1 phenotype, times two in each case. 
And then they group these under three different conditions. One is basically our control conditions. The second is, let's say, with a cold and high light. This isn't particularly high. It's certainly not really stress levels, but it is higher light. And then the third was cold and low light. And what they did then was they grew them under these conditions, and then they did methylomes of each one of these. And what I'm going to orient you to now is just the simplest way, I think, this was Ray's way of, of representing a whole lot of data in just one figure, and I, I like it very much. So basically, you're looking at chromosome 1 through 5, summarized here. And what you're looking at across, uh, across the x-axis is the first panel is what happened with Columbia 0, wild type. The second is what happens with, with the plants that look fairly normal. They're MSH1 minus, but they're normal in phenotype. And the third is those that are MSH1 minus, but they're showing the full elaboration of the phenotype. And then down on the y-axis, you're seeing the first panel being the CG methylation changes, and the second two panels being non-CG methylation changes. And what I really want to point out to you are a couple of things. The first is that Columbia Zero wild type, you know, the methylome doesn't really respond too much, okay? Whether it's CG or non-CG, there's a slight uh, amount of change you can see here, especially for CHH, you can see that it makes some difference. But in terms of magnitude, it's uh, a little bit more mild than what you would see in the MSH1 minus normal looking plant, where you can see that there's a certain amount of change off of zero. Zero is where you're starting, and you can see that for, for uh, low light and cold, you get some, some sort of amount of change in the CG methylome. And here, for a low light and cold, you get a certain amount of change for CHH. But neither of those come remotely close to what you see in the methylome when you're looking at these plants that have undergone this developmental reprogramming, where now you see particularly in cold and low light, because that happens to be the you know, considered the most stressful under these conditions. Sorry, I've lost my, my ability to use a pointer here. But what you can see in those panels is that now for cold and low light in particular, there's a vast change in the methylome. And what this tells us is that what we're creating in this state are plants that are hyper-responsive to their environment. These are not real strict, severe uh, growth conditions, but the plant certainly thinks they are. And the methylome changes are really dramatic under these conditions. So we're creating a state in this plant where it's sensing everything. And the methylome is, is, is likewise hyper-responsive to environment. So there are two things that I want to point out here. The methylome appears to approximate the phenotype in its magnitude of response. The more responsive the, the phenotype, the more responsive the methylome. And second is that this genome appears to be hypersensitive to environmental change. So yet it's one more little phenotype change that goes on associated with the MSH1 depletion. So, so here's, here's the thing. We can basically start to dissect this phenotype into those phenomena that are triggered by the plastid. There are other phenomena triggered by the mitochondrial disruption of MSH1. And then there are those phenomena that are strictly epigenetic. And I'm not today going to have time to go into exactly how we dissect all this out, but we use a combination of hemi-complementation mutants as well as our ability to use RNAi and then remove the RNAi transgene in order to create these unusual states. We know now that the plastid effects the mitochondrial effects and the epigenetic effects all contribute to this complex phenotype that I'm describing to you. But more importantly, what we've also discovered is that once we create this very unusual state, and once it becomes heritable, if we take that modified state and cross that plant to an isogenic unmodified state, so all this work we've done is in Columbia Zero and Arabidopsis. If we take a Columbia Zero plant, that undergoes that, that modification that we're creating by MSH1 depletion and cross it to a plant that's never seen MSH1 depletion, even though those plants are genetically identical, the progeny from that cross in subsequent generations will give rise to a range of phenotypes that are non-genetic phenotypes but are adaptive phenotypes. And one of them is enhanced growth. So I'm showing you a picture here of one of our, what we call epilines, that shows now enhanced vigor. In this case, you're seeing rosette size, but we also see enhanced yield in these plants. We also see enhanced abiotic stress tolerance in these plants. All of these phenomena 
non-genetic. We've never introduced any genetic variation as far as we know. And we can actually do this through crossing, but to some extent we can also do this through grafting, which implies that whatever the signal is that triggers this kind of a change in growth behavior is, is, is a signal that in fact can be graft transmissible. Now if we use a similar type of analysis of the methylome and we use a principal component and linear discriminant analysis to ask when we make these changes following crossing and we get this enhanced growth behavior, is it different than what we were seeing when we just had that MSH1 odd mutant phenotype? In fact, it appears that they are different and distinguishable. So now you're looking at the epi lines up here, those things that came through crossing, and here you're looking at the nice cluster of all of those that have their methylome changed as associated with MSH1 depletion. So it appears that you go from wild type to depleting with MSH1, you create one state, this hyperstress state, and when you make a cross with wild type, you go to yet a very distinct state again for methylome. And we'd like to understand what those transitions are, and more importantly, whether we can associate those methylome transitions with changes in gene expression. So one of the ways that we've tried to do that is to start looking for epiQTLs. So come on, I can see the before and after changes in MSH1, and I can see the before and after changes in creating these epi lines after we make these crosses. So surely I should be able, in making those comparisons, to be able to start finding methylome changes that associate with gene expression changes. And again, I'm not going to have time to go through the, the, uh, the, the many gyrations we've had to go through in order to develop a means of doing this. Because let, let me just tell you that the methods that are available to us right now through the literature for genome-wide methylome analysis are really quite inadequate to be able to have the resolution we need in order to associate gene expression with methylation changes. So we've had to optimize this to, to a great extent. And so what we have used is uh, a combination of uh, information theory, basically applied mathematic approaches, together with principal component and linear discriminant analyses procedures, together with network enrichment analyses, in order to come up with a way of understanding what we've done in terms of gene expression in association with what we've done with methylome. So what we're attempting to do is to integrate the methylome data analyzed using these methods that we're now developing together with gene expression data, gene expression changed data that's coming from MSH1. So let me just tell you with regard to the MSH1 mutant phenotype, since I've described that in most detail to you today, this is kind of what the printout would look like on the left. It gives us the opportunity through, the, through uh, KEG networks to identify the key networks that are being altered uh, in, in methylome as well as gene expression. And here you're just looking at a couple of those because that's all I could fit on this screen. And in this case, they're really addressing a circadian rhythm-mediated pathways. And in some cases, those pathways are altered where you see those blue lines from the way they're normally regulated. And in some, they're following consistent with what we know about those pathways normally. But all of them are changed in expression in response to perturbation of MSH1. And the interesting thing is that if you look at the pathways that we have identified to overlay and integrate between methylome changes and gene expression changes associated with MSH1, you're seeing the list that I've got listed up here. Hopefully you can read them. But they are precisely the list that I started out with when I told you what are the major changes we see in gene expression associated with the MSH1 phenotype. This is extremely gratifying to us because this essentially this integration of methylome data with gene expression doesn't necessarily mean that one is causing the other, but it certainly says that there's a clear association. And up to this point, we've never had that resolution before. So this is very exciting to us because it implies that if we can show an association between methylome behavior and gene expression, then we can start to be predictive and we can start to identify perhaps epiQTLs that we can follow for telling us those changes that are based, basically associated with enhanced growth potential. Okay, And that's the key. If I create this, can I actually capture value from it, certainly in terms of a breeding uh, standpoint? So here's the thing. When you work with MSH1 as a stable mutant, it's a little bit trickier to work with. But if you use it, if you create it by RNAi suppression, so you transform a plant 
with an RNAi construct and you downregulate MSH1, you create the same phenotype. You're seeing that over on the right here. Uh, well, there's some Columbia zeros there. But where you start to see variegation, plants will start to become dwarf. You're seeing a range of phenotypes. This is just emerging. Now, once you remove the transgene, you let it segregate away. Over on the left-hand panel there, you can see that we can see what we call RNAi minus. They no longer have the transgene. They are non-transgenic, but they maintain the phenotype. They are dwarfed. They're delayed in flowering. The whole deal is still there. Now, here's the real, real interesting part. They're non-transgenic. MSH1 is being expressed as far as we know normally. This phenotype we've created is fully penetrant and heritable. That means that when I take seed from one of those dwarf plants that's non-transgenic, expressing MSH1 fine, I will get a, excuse me, 100% of its progeny showing the same phenotype. And their progeny, 100% showing this phenotype. So once you go into this state, even if you reinstate MSH1 expression, you leave an epigenetic behavior behind. Now, that could be an epigenetic and organelle behavior, and we're still trying to sort that out. But whatever that condition is, it becomes irreversible at that point. That becomes a breeding stock. That becomes the source for now crossing to any line you'd like in order to trigger the epigenetic phenomena we're after. And it's heritable, and you can maintain it stably. And uh, I'm just pointing out there on the lower left-hand corner that uh, the, we no longer see mitochondrial recombination changes because MSH1 is there. And over on the right-hand corner, we're no longer seeing those, uh, basically those changes in redox status of the organelle, likewise because MSH1 is replaced. So MSH1 is still doing its day job, but in terms of the epigenetic leftovers, they remain intact. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is that the phenomenon I'm describing to an Arabidopsis will happen as far as we can tell in any crop. So we can create these dwarfed, delayed flowering, you know, highly stress-responsive plants in virtually any crop that we've tried so far. I have just the, the standard list here of tomatoes, soybean, tobacco, millet, and sorghum, but we're also doing this in maize. And this is also uh, working out in, uh, we're, we're also trying this in rice, we're trying this in wheat. Okay, we have a, a number of crops, cassava. We have a number of crops in which we're testing this system. And what I want to point out to you is in each case, they seem to tell the same story. So it's not only that they all become dwarfed, they're all altered in branching, leaf morphology will change, flowering time will change. They all seem to go to the same state, dicot or monocot, okay? But in addition, if we remove the transgene by segregation, the RNAi transgene, so that we're no longer suppressing MSH1, they hold on to their phenotype. And they hold on to their phenotype independent of the transgene with MSH1 expressing fine, so that now you're looking at a field of altered sorghum, here are these little dwarfed plants, and we've never seen reversion of these. Once we achieve this state, minus the transgene, so this has been five generations with no transgene, it holds, okay? So this becomes, as I said, a breeding stock from which we can now make crosses to wild-type sorghum to create and unleash epigenetic change. Now, it is true, likewise, that we can see enhanced growth. If we subject the population, so now let's say that I do this in Texas 430, that's a commonly used uh, inbred in sorghum. If I do this in Texas 430, I add my RNAi transgene, and I create this state, remove the transgene, and cross it to Texas 430, so we're not introducing any genetic variation. In the subsequent generations, if we sort, if, if we try to segregate and select for enhanced growth, we will see response that way. And now you're seeing that we can increase yield, we can increase uh, panicle size. And likewise, we can do this in soybean. And in fact, you will see these funny looking leaves, they almost look viral. And you will see that it can go to quite an extreme in terms of the dwarfing. And here we've done this in thorn, which is just a group three public variety. And again, we can see these differences as we select for them. So we can select for enhanced growth behavior. And, uh, and, and you know, some of these will actually address yield if we select for yield, okay? And what we will find is that they do grow somewhat differently in the greenhouse. They will remain group three and they will be harvested at precisely the same time and mature at the same time. 
But under greenhouse conditions, you can see that in terms of uh, there's a, a bit more of a stay green or a delayed green phenotype in these. So we know that we have made a change in these plants. And uh, this is sort of early harvest data. We will, in fact, be able to see that there is a range in performance. What we're doing is we're creating here phenotypic variation, but it's non-genetic. Okay? So my goal here, I think Mother Nature's goal here, is not necessarily to enhance yield. Although I am telling you that if Thor normally yields here, it has the potential to yield here because we've seen it, right? There's some sort of a capacity that we don't normally see in our standard breeding efforts that those plants still have because we're seeing it through MSH1. But more importantly, if I don't select, if I take everything I get from this, some of these plants are very much enhanced for uh, growth performance. Some of them are enhanced for abiotic stress tolerance. There is a general variant, variation, that comes with epigenetic manipulations that we don't have in our standard breeding effort. And I would submit to you, it's what we should be aiming for. Because what we want isn't necessarily the biggest and the highest yielding crop. What we want is the crop that can perform uniformly across environments. That's where GBIE gets us is we can't really predict how we're going to perform across a variation of environments. But if we have in, included epigenetic variation, which remember, it's not changing you genetically, and it's not going to create variation that you're going to see, excuse me, unless those plants are going to be encountering a wide range of, of environments, then in fact what you've created is buffering capacity for that phenotype. And this is what you're saying here. All of these could have been pulled together. What we did, we, we selected them individually as soybean lineages to see what their performance would be. And as you can see, they're all outperforming wild type, which is the black on the left-hand side. And in addition, if we take them and put them across environments, you will see that uh, the green is one uh, lineage we selected, the blue is another, and you can see quite a range across environments. But imagine if we had pulled those relative to how wild type would have performed. In general, it would have outperformed wild type in each one of those environments. Now, if you select them, this is basically what we found in larger, I shouldn't say large scale because a lot of you guys deal with really large scale, but in larger scale field testing in soybean, about the F3, so we've, we've basically created a thorn line with MSH1, we made a cross to thorn, so there's no genetic variation here. We grew that out to the F2, the F3, the F4, it's going through selection each time. The F3 uh, was selected, and what you'd see is, is enhancement in basically overall yield. That's all, we're, that's all I'm giving you there. And that will hold to the F4. Now, how do I know that I haven't created genetic changes in these? Because it will fade, just like an epigenetic trait should. It will fade by the F5, and by the F6, it's gone back to wild type. So what you'll see is this increase in performance that eventually will fade as the epigenetic uh, signatures will change, will fade. Okay. The same thing will happen with tomato, and there's a nice poster outside that uh, Shadong Yang has put together. And so we've done that in Rutgers, which is not an improved variety, but we've done this in Rutgers, and I just want to point out that the same things apply. You get something akin to heterosis, enhanced growth performance, and you will, in those cases, also see heat tolerance. So we know that there's abiotic stress tolerance behavior in some of these materials as well. We haven't gone to as extreme an, uh, an extent yet in testing that abiotic stress tolerance. But this concept I'm presenting to you, this idea that we would in fact buffer uh, our genotypes with this epigenetic phenomenon is something we're going to be trying. This summer we're going to grow out about 200 F2 populations of 100 each about 12,000 plants we're going to assay for overall phenotype at the F2. And we're going to derive F3 families from those. And a lot of those we're going to pull. And we're going to grow on all kinds of environmental conditions. We'll do this in sorghum first. And what I'd like to see is the extent to which I can buffer so that G by E becomes minimized and I outperform wild type in each environment by virtue of putting all the variation non-selected that comes from MSH1 together with our, our genotype. Now, in the case of tomato, it allows us to look at other features of the system that we can't look at, for instance, really in soybean and sorghum. So we can graph transmit this phenomenon. And what you're looking at is the grafted line on the left of Rutgers wild type as the scion put onto a rootstock that's been MSH1 treated or MSH1 modified. 
relative to, on uh, to the right of that, you just see Rutgers grafted to Rutgers. And as you can see, we get the growth enhancement, and we see uh, changes in flowering time, et cetera. So we can, in fact, see a graft transmissibility. Also in tomato, it gives us an opportunity to ask whether the methylation we've been monitoring is likely associated with these phenotypes. So here we're using a chemical methylation inhibitor, uh, 5-acetidine, and what you can see is that on the left-hand side, that's the growth difference that you'd see with no, with, oh, no treatment. The wild type is a little slower than our epi line, as you can see very early on. But when we add 5-acetidine on the lower side, you see that we obviate that difference in growth. So that implies, doesn't prove, but implies that the methylation we're seeing is to some extent uh, underpinning this enhanced growth performance that we're seeing, which again suggests that if we learn to read the methylome, to decode the methylome, to understand these methylation marks, we will in fact also be able to predict and to follow this enhanced growth performance. And this is actually just taking them out of those pots and growing them a little bit longer in soil. And what I want to point out to you is that for some period of time, that 5-azacytidine obviation of the enhanced growth continues. Now, if we were to grow these several, a couple weeks more, you would then see that ultimately we would resume that enhanced growth by those epi lines relative to wild type. And that's, that's very consistent with the way methylation behaves and the remethylation of those genomes. So what this gives us is an opportunity to now start looking at uh, the opportunity to follow methylation as it influences gene expression, as it influences phenotype. I think in a much more methodical way than we've ever been able to do before. And it gives us an opportunity now to think very carefully about whether we can manipulate genotype by environment interaction as well as heterosis in a more methodical way than we, we have. Let me just sort of close by telling you where MSH1 is and how it behaves. I've been talking to you about how it's involved in plastid perturbation, but I never said chloroplast, and the reason is because this is not operating in the photosynthetic chloroplast. MSH1 has its own plastid type where it operates, and that's on the epidermal layer, and it's also in the vascular parenchyma. MSH1 also operates in reproductive tissues. Those plastids may or may not be photosynthetic, but they are not the chloroplast that we rely on for photosynthesis. In fact, I would submit to you that perhaps those plastids are involved in environmental sensing, and we've never understood them before. So the lab is involved right now in some experiments to try to do a whole proteome of those plastids, as well as to try to look at the translatome of those particular plastids to understand a little bit about what goes on uniquely there that doesn't happen in the standard chloroplast. Because ironically, as long as we've been studying plastids, we have never actually started to look at specialized plastids that might be involved in environmental sensing. So there's no literature there. And uh, let me just point out, these plastids that we're interested in, here you're looking at them uh, next to the, uh, in, the, in a section near the vein, as well as in the epidermal layer. What these plastids are is about a third the size of a normal chloroplast, although you can see they've got starch. They might, in fact, uh, import the sugar rather than synthesize it themselves. And what I also want to point out is that MSH1, in fact, sits on the thylakoid membrane and so has the potential to perhaps influence redox and or ROS generation. So right now, our, our working model in the lab, so what you're looking at here is on the right-hand side, we're just pointing out to you that it, it fractionates with the thylakoid membrane on the left-hand side that it's coming down with, with the thylakoid. And, uh, uh, sorry, on the uh, uh, right-hand side, I'm also showing you that with uh, mild uh, detergent, it, it will continue to fractionate with the membrane. And the lower left-hand corner, I'm showing you that it's also fairly affixed to that membrane because it doesn't come off with salt. So, so right now, our working model is that, in fact, MSH1 sits on the thylakoid membrane, has the capacity to mediate communication, perhaps between the genome, where it is known to, to associate in the, in the nucleoid, as well as on the thylakoid membrane associated with uh, electron transport and redox sensing. But we don't know more than that. And we have started to identify some of its interactors on the thylakoid membrane, and we're in the process of trying to understand how those interactors might also help to mediate this phenomenon. Ultimately, we would like to understand the whole process of environmental sensing as it relates to MSH1. So let me just kind of summarize what we think MSH1 might actually do and how we might capture value from this. Naturally speaking, 
when a plant experiences abiotic stress, we know that MSH1 transcript levels, steady state transcript levels, are, are suppressed. So we know that Mother Nature has some capacity to reduce MSH1, although it isn't near to the level that we expect we're achieving with RNAi suppression. And what we also know is that plastid and mitochondrial perturbation can give rise to this global stress response. So you pull MSH1 out, your organelles will be impacted, you now start to create some way for the plant to recognize that there is stress. And you start to change gene expression associated with several pathways uh, involving abiotic stress behavior. The possibility exists that that creates a systemic signal. Why do I say that? Because we know that we can graph transmit some of the effects that we're dealing with. And in association with that, we also know that we can now create heritable effects via methylome repatterning, the repatterning of methylation uh, behavior within the genome. That perhaps gives us the opportunity to create heritable changes that are non-genetic. Now the beauty of this, agriculturally speaking, is once we understand this phenomenon, we can manipulate this phenomenon. And the model is right now that in fact we may uh, be able to capture more value from the varieties we've already uh, developed, as well as to start to manipulate the non-genetic component of crop performance together with the genetic performance in a, in a, a fairly um, thoughtful and um, informed manner relative to the way we are dealing with, for instance, heterosis and G by E under conditions now where we don't know exactly why it is that we have heterosis and we don't know very much about why it's not a heritable phenomenon. So with that, let me just uh, thank the uh, groups that, that fund us. Um, my first slide uh, introduced some of the people that have been involved. The people that have been involved in this study are actually many of them in the room. Um, uh, so Ray Shao, as I said, has been one of the organizers of this meeting. Uh, Sunil Kumar is an organizer of this meeting. Uh, Vikas Shege is also here today. Uh, Hardik uh, Kundaria is also one of the people that's done most of the Arabidopsis work that I presented today. So with that, I thank you very much, and I'd love to answer some questions. So do you speculate the phenotype you see in the increase in the methylation is via what we think we know on the threshold signaling pathway, or do you think it's via some mechanism that we still don't quite understand? Can, can you ask your, your question again? I didn't well, hear the, the first part of it. The increase in the methylation pattern, do you think it's possibly via what we already know in the threshold signaling pathway, or do you think it's a mechanism that's not quite understood yet? So two things. I, I, don't, I think that in terms of the machinery involved in triggering these methods, as I said, they pattern very similarly to what you'll see in the literature, like I said, under, under conditions of stress. So I don't have any reason to believe that we are changing the behavior of the methylation machinery. What I think is that we have identified a way to trigger it uniquely. So we're fooling the plant into thinking that it is seeing massive stress and it is simply responding accordingly. Does that make sense? So I think the overall signature matches what you'd read in the literature associated with stress. And in fact, there are some, you know, some really good examples in Arabidopsis under stress where you basically see the hypermethylation of the paracentromeric space likewise. So, so in that regard, I don't think we're necessarily altering that. I think we're creating a state that's, that's unique. And so what we didn't know is that you could trigger something like this through organelles. And because we're doing it through RNAi, it's far more extreme than you'd probably see under natural conditions. But I think it is, you know, nature's way, right? This isn't, this isn't creating a state that, that couldn't happen naturally, except by virtue of the fact that because of the way we're handling this and the way that we're making our crosses, we're creating materials you wouldn't find in nature, right? But the idea that MSH1 is suppressed in response to environment, that will happen naturally. Not, not to the extent that RNAi would suppress it, but that will already occur. So yeah, I think we're just triggering the methylation machinery to create a, a stress state.
a bit of a paradox in some of the slides you showed. You showed the effect disappears as you self it down. Okay. And yet, breeders, when they make a big cross to make genetic variation, they also do the same selfing to isolate a heritable variation. If you're saying you've isolated a dwarf in the F2 that breeds or breeds true for that particular characteristic, even though you're doing the same selfing there. So I don't understand that paradox there. Can you explain that? Yeah, so that's a good question. So in the one case, we can create, not through crossing, but we can create a condition, this stress condition for MSH1 by introducing an RNAi transgene. And once it creates that stress condition, we can segregate away the transgene through selfing and that condition will remain heritably with no reversion. And as Jim points out, and yet we say it's largely an epigenetic state. Why is it heritable? And I can't tell you altogether why that is, but I do know I've got organellar effects also involved in that. That may be part of it. And the other is I don't have any segregation there. I create the state and I only maintain it through selfing. As opposed to when I take that state and I cross it to a wild type unmodified, genetically identical, now I'm juxtaposing an unmodified and a modified genome, and I have plenty of reason to believe there's not only going to be uh, segregation of the epigenetically modified loci, but there's also going to be a certain amount of induction uh, de novo of, of novel epi alleles. That process of sorting slash segregation is largely what I expect that I'm seeing in those soybean populations. I'm not creating that heterozygous state, if you will, in that first example, and I am in the second. That's the only explanation I have so far. But otherwise, I mean, we're just following these to try to understand more what each of these states are, because you're absolutely right. In one case, it will die, and in the other case, it doesn't. Both of them are created through MSH1 depletion, but one is, as I said, crossing and juxtaposing it to a genome that hasn't been modified. So I'm automatically creating this heterozygous state, if you will, for every locus and then it's sorting its way through. And, and, and why it would peak at the F3, F4, whether we can get it to continue through the F5 before it diminishes, those are all things that we're investigating now. But yeah, there's still a lot to be learned here. And because these are novel conditions, I, you know, we just go with where it takes us. It's quite an unusual uh, process. But those uh, epigenetically modified lines that don't revert, we've taken those out 10 cycles. So I believe they're, they're quite stable. In the interest of time, Sally uh, will be here in the reception so you can ask more questions to her there. So we'll go, uh, thank Sally for her presentation. So, uh,